0: Welcome to 12 Scholars, a podcast dedicated to leadership development. In this second series, we meet 12 inspiring people, all known for being visionary in their thinking. To learn more about leadership development and how you can take your performance to the next level, visit our website and click the button to subscribe. In this week's show, we meet Tom Bloxham. Tom is chairman and founder of the multi-award-winning regeneration company Urban Splash.
1: I always think there are two sorts of people in the world, those who think they can and those who think they can't, and they're both right. People always ask me which my favourite project is. I always got the same answer. My favourite one's the next one, because I always like to look forward. I mean the only skill I've ever had in my life is surrounding myself with people cleverer and brighter than me. And then delegating to be fair, but I think the only way you get anywhere in life is by collaboration.
0: Tom knows all about leadership and what it means to begin with the end in mind. He moved to Manchester to study politics and history, and while studying, built a successful business selling posters to students, renovating houses and subletting large retail units to fellow entrepreneurs. For over 25 years, Tom and his team at Urban Splash have been transforming some of the most iconic buildings in the country. And today, he's reimagining new ways of building homes for the future. So in this episode, we sit down with Tom to discuss how we can all be more visionary by leaving a better legacy. So welcome Tom to 12 Scholars. Thank you. So we're recording this interview in your office at Timber Wharf in Castlefield. And for our listeners and readers, perhaps you could talk to us about kind of where we are and the
1: significance of this area in the journey of your business. So we're in one of my favorite parts of Manchester, Castlefield, and it's where the Victorians built the railways, crashing into the canals, crashing into the road network, and actually the world's first passenger, intercity passenger station, was just around the corner in what's now the Museum of Science and Industry. But when we found this area, it looked very different to what it does today. It was run down, it was derelict, there were a few old sheds, the site on it was a yard basically of a packaging company, Yet, it was only a stone's throw from the city center, so we thought we could do something with it. There were a couple of old, nice old buildings worth keeping. There were some fairly tatty, newer buildings worth demolishing. And over a period of years, we've probably bought in 10 different little sites all adjacent to each other, close to each other. And then we converted them, some with new build and some with conversions, into some great places to live and work. We're using some of the best architects.
0: Yeah, so it's a fabulous space. And this is the headquarters of Urban Splash.
1: That's right. Yeah. So we, cho- we chose to have our office here so we can look out and we've got some communal gardens outside. We've got car parking below it and we've got a series of different um, a series of different buildings. And it's really, I thought in Manchester we wanted somewhere to live. Most of the very early Manchester city centre dwellings were right in the city centre on Oldham Street or Canal Street, which is great, but it's pretty noisy and bustly and you walk out of your flat and you've got a bar there or a big issue cellar. And I also thought there was a market in Manchester for people who want to live close enough to the city centre to have access to all the city centre offers, but far enough away not to be kept awake at night by the hustle and bustle of it, and have the canal to walk along so you can walk from here to Pigli Station without crossing a single road.
0: Nice, fabulous space. So over the years then, Urban Splash has gained a reputation for urban regeneration, challenging convention and demonstrating that there is a better way. Perhaps you could talk to us a bit about one of the early projects and the challenges you faced at the
1: time. In a way, it was very straightforward in that I came to Manchester, in Manchester and Liverpool, in most of our cities. Um, At night at five o'clock, literally the shutters came down, everyone left. The buildings were typically used just a ground floor level. Upper floors were empty. They'd been built as um, warehouses, used a bit as offices. The conventional wisdom was they were unlettable as offices because everybody wanted to get into modern out-of-town office blocks. But we just saw, thought they were wonderful buildings. Um, I've been to New York, seen the way that people live there, and thought they'd make great apartments or workspace. So you know, we started buying them very cheaply, typically for less than the price of carpet, um, literally, um, doing them up, letting them very flexibly to other young people, entrepreneurs, uh, working in different businesses, um, and pretty quickly developed a bit of traction, developed some um, you know some cash, some cash flow. And then started thinking about a residential and did the first scheme in Liverpool in Constant Square, um, doing loft apartments, converted the building very cheaply, £27 a square foot. We sold them for £60 a square foot, so £60,000, a wonderful thousand square foot apartment. And looking back on it, it was pretty crude and pretty basic, but still great places to live. You know, they're still very much in demand. And I presume you weren't working alone at the time, you had a team around you? Well, originally it was just me and Jonathan, actually. You know, Jonathan was an architect, very talented. So literally two of us, um, two of us starting up in a shed, uh, a literal startup. But very quickly we developed a team around us of designers and builders and constructors and did everything from first principles.
0: Yeah. And one of the themes that um, I want to explore with you today is it'll never work. Last year was your 25th anniversary and that was the title of a roadshow, a presentation you did. Um, so perhaps you could talk to us a bit about It'll Never Work. Um, what's the story behind that?
1: Yeah. So we were doing a book. It's 25 years and we thought it was time to sort of celebrate a bit. And what was apparent from doing the book is a real diversity of different schemes we've done. Some are new builds. Some are conversions. Some are massive buildings like Fort Dunlop. Some are very modest buildings like a terrace house in Salford. Um, some are modular construction. Some are conventional construction. Some are commercial. Some are residential. So a whole variety And we were trying to think what do they have in common. You know, one thing's probably the architecture. But the other thing is the fact that on most of the schemes we've done, when we started doing them, people told us it would never work. And for us, that was sort of a provocation of, you know, proving the naysayers wrong and just doing things a bit differently. And they were often difficult schemes, often difficulties, and people had looked at them and not done them before. But we thought it was worth giving it a go. And, um, you know, certainly the vast majority of them have worked and worked very well.
0: So the common wisdom would have been, what, uh, knock them down or just leave them, don't touch them?
1: Yeah, the, the common um, wisdom was it was too difficult, they were in the wrong areas, there was no demand, nobody wanted to live there. And, you know, it's one of the issues, the property industry is very much backward looking. If you want your house value, the value comes along and sees what the house next door sold for last year. So everything's looking backwards rather than looking forwards. And we've always tried to look forwards. And, you know, when we started developing the city centre, very few people live in the city centre. But we believe that that's the sort of place we wanted to live. That's the sort of place a lot of our friends want to live. And it's about not being, you know, in some ways not having a property training is very helpful because you see things with a fresh pair of eyes and you see things perhaps diff- differently from the rest of the industry, which can be helpful.
0: So even though Jonathan was an architect... Um, you know, you were both into development and, and looking for those opportunities.
1: Yeah, and looking to do what we thought was right, looking to develop places that we'd want to live in or work in, or places that we thought were really cool and exciting and sexy and interesting.
0: And where do you think this drive or this kind of inner belief of trying to prove the naysayers wrong, where do you think that comes from?
1: I don't think it's so much proving the naysayers wrong, I think it's more about proving ourselves right. and. Just starting with a fundamental belief of what we thought was right, what we thought would work. So, for instance, we went into some buildings, and it sounds unbelievable now. People said, "Oh, that won't work for residential." We said, "Why not?" They said, "The ceilings are too high." You know, they said it'd be too expensive to heat. But actually, our view is everyone loves um, high ceilings, and yeah, maybe it is a bit more expensive to heat. But you can either buy a jumper, you know, or uh, pay for the heating. But actually, having the high floor to ceilings, having big windows, is a wonderful advantage, and space is the best luxury you can have. And you know, a bit of extra heating was a price well worth paying for. Whereas conventionally people have put in suspended ceilings in these sorts of buildings to lower them.
0: So it's a very much you were building for people like you. So people like us do things like this.
1: Exactly right. It was people like us and thinking what we believed in rather than what the market told us. You know, another example is we were doing this amazing mill in Bradford Lister Mills, and we quite didn't quite know what to do with it. And the first thing that happened is someone said, Of course, you know you can't use this for offices. And I said, why can't we use offices? And they said, well, the loadings aren't good enough. And then I showed him a picture of all the steam driven machinery that was used as textile mills, and says he told me you can't get a few desks and chairs on there. And he said, well, of course you can, but we can't prove the loadings will work and therefore we won't appeal to these standards, whatever the standards were. And we just thought, well, that just sounds so crazy to us. Let's just go and do it anyway.
0: And Lister Mills, uh, from, my, from my memory, they've got these unusual pods on the, on the roof.
1: Yeah, again, we'd done the first building, Want wanted to do the second building, and you know, it was great saving old buildings and restoring those. But also, we always try to want to add something to them and leave them a bit better. And lots of presidents, you know, like the British Museum with the central atrium filled in, or lots of presidents of old and new kind like together. Louvre, the Paris. Louvre in Paris. Exactly. Yeah. And so doing something like that, where we use very good contemporary architecture to show off and shine against the very beautiful old Victorian architecture.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the phrase there, leave the place in a better shape. Would you say that's very much a theme that's kind of run through your projects?
1: You know, very much so. Whenever I talk now, I always finish on a quote, which is a quote sworn by the city's ancient Athens, that we will leave the city, not less, but better, greater, more beautiful than we found it, which I think is a really nice quote. And I think, you know, everyone can sort of share that quote, and whether that's by picking up a piece of litter or becoming a school governor or whatever you want to do, but particularly those of us involved in the built environment, I think it's a real privilege and a burden to make sure that what we're doing is trying to leave our cities better. And, you know, it depresses me so much when there's so much mediocre development coming on. And I think, you know, too many people aren't thinking about the legacy they leave. All they're thinking about is the net to growth or the profitability or unit numbers or delivery. Whereas I think if you start thinking about the legacy you're leaving, it makes your job more interesting and inevitably you'll leave a better legacy.
0: Now, two of the projects that I know are fairly current to yourselves, Park Hill in Sheffield, and the other's House. Perhaps could touch on Park Hill. Um, Now, this is a development which was built in the 1950s. And from my understanding, it's actually one of the largest or the largest listed building in Europe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing building. To to be honest with you, it was from another time, post-war, rationing had finished, and there was an optimism in the world. The space race was on lives were getting better and better. Inventions were happening. You know, cars were becoming more and more affordable. People had radios and they had televisions. Colour television. Colour television (laughs) came out. People saw the man land on the moon. Concorde was there. Hovercraft was invented. Everything was becoming better and better. And uh, Sheffield City Council hired a very young architect straight out of college who believed that housing could improve people's lives. And they built this amazing uh, building influenced by Le Corbusier from France. And they took people who had been living in back-to-backs with no toilets out of the slums into these streets in the sky with this visionary idea. And initially it was hugely successful. People loved it. It was published in Russian, in French, in English, as one of the great, great stories of how to solve the housing crisis. It was on a hill. So part of it is four story, part of it is 16 story, but the roof datum is the same level and you can walk from side to side. So lots of great, interesting things about it. Every flat is double aspect. So it means every flat's got a front and back window because you enter every third floor and either go upstairs or downstairs. So every flat, and remember these were built as council flats, is a duplex on two stories. Every flat has got a south-facing living room. Every flat has got balconies overlooking the city centre, typically two or three. Every flat has got better space standards than the so-called modern luxury private flats. So lots of amazing things about it. But the city really fell out of love with it. It was badly maintained. The tenant selection wasn't great. And it became the, ultimately became a place ...of last choice, badly maintained, lifts not working... ...those who could move voted with their feet and left. It was used to house asylum seekers. Sheffield fell out of love, wanted to demolish it. English Heritage listed it so they couldn't demolish it, with it. Nobody knew what to do with it. It had a competition. But we came and we looked at it and we saw there was some real quality there... ...and some real beauty there. And we wanted to do something to save it. And so we won the competition to develop it... ...and then we've been working through saving it. Just about managed to get through the global financial crisis... Uh, did the first phase really successful up and now we're on the two more phases some student housing some more residential. And we're also hoping to put an art centre in there, working with a charity called S1 Arts, putting an art gallery in there and helping them with a big capital fundraising bid. Uh, there's a free public nursery, all the coolest brands in Sheffield, the filmmakers, the architects, the designers are in there. There's a vegan cafe, some great landscaping. So it's a really exciting place and I think a real asset to Sheffield now and a, modern, a mid-century modern quarter of Sheffield. So it's now the, the, the cool, hip place. Everybody wants to be there and associated with it. Absolutely. So it's like Marmite. Everybody used to think it was awful. A very few th- things is great now the vast majority of people think it's great and it's great to see it come back to life
0: yeah and the other project uh, which is really bringing um uh, development and housing regeneration up to date is house the modern day equivalent of prefab houses
1: yeah, I mean, this really came about is what we realised is all our purchasers, when they bought flats, when they moved to buy a house, none of them, and I mean none of them, bought a new-built house. They all went to Manchester, to Chaltern, or Ditzbury and bought an old Victorian Edwardian Terrace. But did some research, and actually 70% of the population, when they move, as a first choice, prefer to buy a second-hand house rather than a new one, you know, it's an indictment of our house-building industry. And you look at most of our industries, look at televisions. Every time you buy a new television, it's cheaper and bigger and better than the previous one. Likewise with the phones or cars or anything else. Yet our housing is getting more and more expensive and no better. And so we thought, let's go back to first principles. And what do we want from a house? So we thought we want a house that's actually modern, that's got high ceilings, that's got big windows. Actually very much like an old Victorian terraced house. And also one where people can... um specified themselves and bespoke it. So when you go to car, you used to go to the car showroom and drove away really, the one that most suited to you. Today you go online. Do you want a convertible? Do you want an estate? What size engine? What color? What upholstery? So we do the same with the houses. Do you want the kitchen on the ground floor or the top floor? Do you want an open plan or cellular? Um, how do you want to live? How does it want to work? Then how do we build these? Do we build them conventionally like the Romans did 2,000 years ago with wet cement and bricks? And we thought there must be better ways of building it. So we started building the factory. Last year, we bought the factory from SIG PLC. Earlier this year, um, we took on some investment from Homes England, part of UK government, and also Sekisui House, which is the biggest house built in the world from Japan, They're building 45,000 homes a year. They've been doing it since 1960. They've got five mega factories in Japan. So we thought they could really teach us more about modular building and enable us to really scale and grow this company.
0: And what sort of lessons have you learned about this new way of manufacturing now?
1: And we're learning lessons all the time. It's still very difficult and we've still got more to learn. And I won't say we've got all the answers yet, but we're getting better and better. We're getting more and more efficient at uh, doing them. We're learning how to operate factories, which is very different from building um, you know, conventional building. And, you know, I believe it's the future. I believe industrialisation is the ongoing process. And I'm passionate about making our homes more and more affordable. You know, like Jeff Bessels, I want to make things cheaper and cheaper, more and more affordable, not more and more expensive. And I think the only way to do without the housing is through industrial processes. Yeah.
0: And when you look back at all the projects you've done over the years, is the one that particularly stands out to you that you're perhaps most proud of, or has perhaps made the biggest difference to those who interact with that building?
1: I mean, people always ask me which my favorite project is. I always got the same answer. My favorite one's the next one because I always like to look forward. But everyone's been different. You know, things like Fort Dunlop are amazing because of the scale. Royal William Yard in Plymouth is amazing the way we brought it back into use. Chimney Pot Park in Langworthy in Salford has taken a really derelict and abandoned area back full of life and energy. Park Hill by its very scale is fantastic. New Islington took one of the worst estates, Cardamon Estates, turned into what the Times called one of the best places to live in the world. So everyone's got slightly different uh, things, but, but I was very like, much, you're
0: Very much looking forward now. Yeah. The next one. Yeah, the absolutely. One. And when it comes to being visionary, and that's what this theme's all about, so you start with the end in mind, Is there a particular time of day or is there a particular place where you are, where you're most creative or visionary?
1: Well, I think it's usually out of the office, is when you're traveling. I do like to do a lot of walking and cross-country skiing. They're always great. Meeting other people, visiting other countries, going to other schemes. Just chatting with other entrepreneurs. You know, every day I learn something and every day I love learning something. So There's that collaboration, things.
0: working with other people.
1: Very much so. I mean, the only skill I've ever had in my life is surrounding myself with people cleverer and brighter than me. And I think, and then delegating to be fair. But I think the only way you get anywhere in life is by collaboration. And, you know, you should always try to hire people better than you. Never be afraid, never be nervous of that. Um, and just surround yourself with bright, interesting, optimistic people.
0: And is there anything that perhaps prevents or stops you thinking visionary?
1: I think getting too busy sometimes. Sometimes you get too dragged in the day to day, sorting out today's problems rather than thinking about next year's problems or next decade's problems. So how, how would you typically
0: overcome that then?
1: I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to start every day with a blank piece of paper. Every day where there's nothing I actually have to come and have to do. So you're able to, you know, spend some time thinking about what the future might be of how, you know, best to organize your life, to have time to travel, to meet other people, to do podcasts.
0: Brilliant. And, and looking back at perhaps your younger self now, what advice would you give the younger Tom Bloxham?
1: If you're thinking of going into business, just do it, yeah. The longer you leave it, the more you've got to lose. Think big. Start with the end in mind. Find something in life that you really enjoy. And if you work at what you really enjoy, you'll never have to do a day's work in your life. Surround yourself by great people. I always think there are two sorts of people in the world. Those who think they can and those who think they can't. And they're both right. So you want to be around those people who think they can just go out and do it you know just try it nike just do it yeah yeah
0: and is there a recommended book or podcast that uh, you would perhaps recommend to somebody starting out
1: i mean not one in particular you know read widely read as much as you can meet as many people as you can go over lots of a cup of coffees you know find those companies you admire and read the story of the founders of those companies and do as much as you can
0: Well, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you today. I've certainly learned a lot about your entrepreneurial spirit and always looking forward. For anyone wanting to learn more about Urban Splash or the work you do, where should they go? What should they look for? Look
1: on the website, um, Urban Splash website, loads there. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, Come have a look at our schemes. Um, Read our book, It'll Never Work or Transformation. And like Nike says, just do it. Enjoy. Thank you for the podcast.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. That was Tom Bloxham, one of those people who's determined to leave behind a better legacy. In this episode, we learned more about how to be a visionary. Tom's advice, look for opportunities, especially when others say it will never work. Start thinking more about your legacy, it'll make your job more interesting. Travel widely and meet interesting people. And if you can, start every day with a blank sheet of paper so that you can spend more time thinking about what the future might be. At 12 Scholars, we combine print, digital and audio to deliver what we believe is a unique approach to leadership. Our aim is to be your learning platform for leadership development. To learn more about Tom and meet other inspiring people, visit our website at 12scholars.com. In other news, Series 1 is available to buy as a printed journal. It's a stunning collection of insights and practical advice written and designed to inspire you to make a difference. To receive your copy, visit the website and click the button to subscribe. That was the 12 Scholars Podcast. If you liked the episode, it'd be great if you could leave us a review and be sure to tell one of your friends. My name is Bob and I look forward to joining you next time.